Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy from Guy's Woodshop, or Guy's Shop, depending on, you know. And I'm joined by Hui Huen, also known as the Alabama Woodworker. Good evening, Guy. Good evening, Hui. And Brian Schmidt. What's up, guys? Hey. What is up? So this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our own perspectives on how we get things done in our shops. So we also have a Patreon account, and right now we have one level, and we're simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the costs of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife, and stay tuned to the end of the show to hear about what we've got going on in our shop. So we're going to get right into it, and Brian, you have the first question. All right. This one is from Jim G. Could be Jimmy Garoppolo or it could just be a guy named Jim G. I've recently walled off the third bay of my three-car garage to give me a smaller space to heat and a wall to work with. I've started thinking about my approximate 270-square-foot shop in three dimensions, trimming all the fat and maximizing my functionality. What would you guys do with a nice, healthy 11-foot ceiling, considering I want pretty much my entire shop to exist in this space? What types of ideas would you have for multifunctioning furniture? What would you put on the walls? Everything that can be is already on wheels. I've got most every major tool you guys do. Just curious on your take. How would you cram yourselves into this little space, or do you already? Jim G. So Jim, my my shop's a little bit smaller than that. Um, It's probably about two-thirds that size. And so I can relate to having a, um, I wouldn't call it a small shop, but on the smaller side compared to a lot of people. And when, with the 11 feet of ceiling height you have, um, that's really nice. I, one, one space saving technique that I have for you is to put, put some, uh, outlet drop or like power power cord reel drops in the ceiling and have those plugged in up there. Um, so you can just drop power in a couple different spots in the shop and you don't have to worry about running a horizontal uh, extension cord to one of your wall outlets. I've got two of those in my shop and that, that gives me pretty good flexibility on how I position my machines and um, allows me to push some things up against the wall. Um, the other recommendation I have for utilizing that space um, would be to, to the extent that you can, think about those things that don't require really deep uh, wall cabinet space. So for me, it's my F-style clamps and boxes of screws and things like that. And I actually built storage, um, almost like a little cabinet in between the studs in the wall. Uh, where I didn't have any electrical and they were interior walls. So I don't have insulation to contend with. Um, and that way they're not even protruding into the 270 for you, the 270 square foot shop. It's all housed within kind of the, the vertical plane of your wall. And again, you can even put another kind of hinged, uh, storage on top of that. I don't do that, but it'd be a way to maximize, wall space um we what do you think how how can jim uh maximize that amount of space yeah so i've got uh it's not super tall but it's about 10 feet tall ceiling so it's not as tall as jimmy g's here and uh one thing that i like to do or i have done is actually have overhead shelving for 
tools that I don't utilize a lot, but that take up a relatively large amount of space. Here's a great example. My Craig Foreman, uh, that is a tool that the only time I'm using that is when I need face frames or when I'm doing more uh, carcass type construction that I just want to connect with with pocket screws, right? It's not something I do very often. So I store that above head. Uh, some jigs, a lot of the jigs that I have, I have on pegs and I drill a one and a half inch hole through the jig. And those pegs are just perfect for hanging the, the, uh, those jigs on the wall. And that just gives me a space where they're easily accessible, but sort of out of the way. And that gives me plenty of floor space to sort of roll around the tools like what Jimmy G wants to do here. Uh, Guy, what are some space saving things that you, you implement in your shop in order to maximize the space that you have? Well, um, I'm, I'm actually wall deficient in my shop. I've got, you know, obviously four walls, but one wall has got windows on it. The other wall has the door to get into the garage and then all my mechanicals. So all the, the water heater, the furnace, the air handler, all that stuff is on the one wall. And then the other wall is the garage door. So I basically have one wall in my shop which kind of stinks. Mm. Um, mm. I think wall space is a, is a very valuable thing to have in your shop. Lots can be hung on a wall. And I think you have to look at the ergonomics of what you use most and what you use least and arrange the things on the walls, as you mentioned, according to those. So if you have something you don't use very much, hang it up high or mount it up high. And the things that you use you know, most keep it at, at chest height. One thing I have done in my shop that helps me out a lot. I've got a lot of stuff over the years. I've collected <laughs> a lot of things. I don't use half of them, probably mm -hmm. use less than that now. But anyways, one thing I found for storage is stay away from cabinets, use drawers, mm -hmm. Uh, yes. Okay. Because yeah, yeah. drawers give you that horizontal space you're going to lose on the walls, let's say, but sure, in, a, sure. in a short cabinet, you can actually have a lot of horizontal space and you can put a lot of things in there. Yeah. And if you plan properly, you can get a lot of stuff in a very small cabinet. Um, mm -hmm. A very good thing to have, if you don't want to go through the trouble of making one, a lot of guys that buy the uh, inexpensive rolling shop cabinets that have, that are nothing but drawers and mechanics cabinets. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are pretty nice if you can find room in the, in the shop for that, or even mount, you know, put a couple tools on top of it, make it a rolling tool cart. Yeah. And then have all the storage underneath, but you know, go vertical as much as you can and uh, drawers, drawers, drawers. Yeah, just to add on the whole drawer thing, at least for me, especially considering that we're all in wood shops, I just like keeping the dust off of stuff and not having like a layer of dust on top of all my tools. Unfortunately, having that shelving up overhead and then, uh, yeah, the main, the high shelving overhead, it just gets a lot of dust. So keep that in mind, Brian, uh, Jim, Jimmy G, Jim right. G. All right. And uh, Hui, why don't you get the next question here? 
All right. So this question is from Matt. He says, hi, guys. Love the podcast. Thanks for all that you do. I'm designing my first piece of larger furniture, an entryway table. I am planning three drawers across the top and below that, a cabinet in the center and open shelves on either side. I'm wondering how you guys decide on proportions for, for a build like this. Supposedly, the 1.618 ratio is some kind of magic formula. It makes everything perfect. But how do you use it? Or do you even bother? What if the piece has to fit in a certain space? Do you take that into account? Help me, Woodshop Life. You're my only hope. Matt. Well, Matt, as your only hope, I'm going to be straight up and upfront with you. Uh, first off, before I am straight and upfront with you, the reason why I took this question, Brian, is because you and I are building an entryway table, one of which my wife has been waiting for over a year for. And I don't want to even ask how long your wife has been waiting for it. But uh, completely transparent, I've never used a golden ratio. It's not something that I... In I, you know, automatically off the bat, I'm, I'm thinking about probably the first thing that I'm thinking about is what's the space that it's in. And so my entryway table uh, is is going to be housed very close. It's quite literally at the entryway and it's very close to the double doors that go into my the go into my house, uh, the front doors. And so that space is about two twenty two inches wide before you get to the hinge of the front doors. So I'm making my table 12 inches uh, deep and about 36 inches wide because I've got about 48 inches uh, across in order to house that table. So for me, the biggest thing was where is it going to be? Because I cannot put a traditional size table there, right? Uh, I have to put a fairly thin table in order for it to fit in that space. Brian, now you're you're making something kind of similar. It's, it's fairly, um, it's not very wide, is it? No, it's only the the spread of the legs because the legs uh, splay out. The spread at the at the bottom of the legs is something like forty and a half inches. Mm. Um, the top is forty two long, and mm. the depth of the top is just under thirteen inches. So I could run it through my planer <laughs> after I glued it up. <laughs> yeah, there's um, that too. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, if I had made it 13 and a half, that definitely would not have been worth it for that extra little bit. Um, for, yeah. So for me, it was how, how wide of a space it, is it going to go in and how much, how much wall space do I want? Cause it's going to be kind of tucked in the corner in our entryway. And we have a table there right now, which helps because I know what I like and don't like about the size of that. Um, so I use that as a, as a starting point for determining the size. I didn't, I did not consider, I did not consider the golden ratio. I also, um, did not consider what is, uh, what, what type of angle would the legs normally have as they, mm -hmm. as they splay out. Um, did you use uh, Microsoft Excel to model out your? <laughs> I, should have, I should have. It would have turned out even better. No, actually, this, this I you know I don't build a lot of standalone furniture. I, I I might start doing more of that just from a hobby standpoint because um, it's really satisfying to to start and finish something in the span of a couple of days. Um, yeah. On a simple, so this is a very simple table, but it uh, yeah, I think it's it's turning out nicely. But it's very for me, it's very much. Um, you know, trial and error. I mean, I was laying out pieces on my, 
uh, workbench and sort of playing around with the angle until I liked the angle until the angle suited my eye. And then I just, um, took my bevel bevel gauge or whatever that's called. And, uh, just match the angle, that angle, and then took it over to the table saw to, to start making some cuts. Right on. Guy, I know you've you talked to me before about the golden ratio. What's uh Yeah, I, I think I think there's probably some people out there that don't know what the golden ratio is. So I'm gonna try to explain it in terms that uh anyways, so the golden ratio is it was it's been around since ancient Roman and Greek times, and it's the it's the ratio of the height to the width or the width to the height and the depth. It's using a number applied to something that gives uh, something, makes it more eye-pleasing. And you're going to find most of it in like Roman architecture. If you go to some of the, the, the old ruins and stuff, everything is based on the golden ratio. The, the In Greece, everything was based on the golden ratio. And it applies to furniture too. So let's say you have a piece that you know for functional purposes needs to be 40 inches long to figure out the, the, the height of what it should be. You should, you could take that 40 inches and divide it by 1.68 and that should give you the, the height that is most pleasing. That being said, what Brian and we are talking about uh, when they're designing their entryways is looking at it strictly from the point of functionality where I need this piece to fit in this and I'm going to design it to utilize, utilize that space. And I agree with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. However, I always go a little bit one step further and I use the golden ratio constantly all the time. Right. Okay. Of course, because it helps me, so, but uh, it's but it's not like it's the the end all be all end all be all. So if I know something's got to be, you know, a table's got to be thirty inches high. That's just yep. the way it is. Right. So certain certain things have to be certain heights because of certain things. But when I look at when I'm designing other things that especially mid-century modern stuff where I've got a lot mm. of, which doesn't happen that often, more, not as much as I'd like to. But when I do get a piece like that, that I got a lot of uh, flexibility to do whatever I want to before mm -hmm. the customer sees it, I will take it and say, okay, it's got to do this, it's got to do this, it's got to do this, and it's got to conform to these certain rules like 30 inches high. Um, sure. But then I'll then I'll take it and I'll apply the golden ratio when I start to design other things like the thickness of the legs. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, just weird stuff like that because visually speaking, it helps with the weight of certain aspects of the piece. Yeah, helping with sense? groundedness. Yeah, yeah natural it, it, flow. Yeah, it really helps quite a bit with that. And so I'm a big fan of the golden ratio, but it's not like you become married to it and it's mm -hmm. got to be fit within those parameters, but it is a good help. And you're you have a, a, you're designing a piece. And it's like, how wide should I make it? I don't really know. Well, use a golden ratio to help you along with that number. Mm -hmm. That's really good. Stuff. Yeah. That, yeah. Is, that is good. Really, really good advice. I've never really thought to do that, but it makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I, I guess from my point of view is that I had very specific constraints that I had to work within. Yeah. And, and, and then yeah. I understand that and everybody does. And that's a good thing. Right. But, right. But go mm-hmm. a step when you're trying to figure out, you know, so I've got, it's gotta be this high and this wide and this deep, whatever the, the, the numbers are because mm-hmm. of the, the, the space constraints. But when you're designing, it was like, how thick should I make the legs? Good point. Yep. Yeah. Use that. Yes. How big should I make the drawers? Yeah. Use, Use that. that. Yeah. So, so if in that case, Matt's question is on his entryway table. He wants to have three drawers across the top and below that a cabinet in the center and open shelves to either side. So I'm guessing that means a door in the center section with open shelving on either side. Is that, yeah. is that how you guys read that? Yeah. Well, well, he says three drawers across. Well, no, no, three drawers across the top, and then I might get you're right. Yeah. A, either a single or a double door underneath for the center, and then the open shelves. So in that case, right, with 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 regards to like the thickness of of his uh, rails and styles, he might be able to do that, right? Or or, yeah. or maybe the opening of the shelving and the main cabinet. He might As you say, the 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 cabinet door, the width of the cabinet door space relative to the width of of the opening, would that be a would that be a good place to to consider applying that logic? Sure. Yeah, I think so. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. There's lots of different places it can be applied, yeah. but it, it doesn't have to be the rule. Yeah. It's more of a uh, a helpful guideline. Yeah, guy. Yeah, I remember you said something to me one time about how you design boxes. Is that you often use it there when yeah. thinking about the height of the box to the depth of the box to the overall length or width of the mm-hmm. box. And would you say three five eight is is a combination? Almost, you almost go all to? my boxes are four inches wide, eight inches long, and are four inches high. They're four by six by eight. Four by six that. by eight. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but that's just an easy number for me. Yeah, yeah. And it's a good aspect ratio. I like that. So, yeah. Yeah. all right. Yep. Well, I hope that helps a little bit. And uh, I think that I've got the next question. That's right. And if I can find it, okay, here it is. This comes from Joe James. And uh, he says, hello, as I have said before, this is the best woodworking podcast on the planet. Well, I, I, I tend to agree with you, Joe. I enjoy so much the focus on woodworkers' questions. Thanks so much. So, he says, my question starts from a recent project I started. I try to be more exacting. I designed the project on grid paper, figure out each exact dimension, and then start to calculate wood requirements. I figured out the sheet goods by figuring out the rough layout of the parts on a scale grid diagram. Then I calculated the board fit of solid wood parts using a board fee calculator app and selecting 10% for waste option. I then added them up and I got ready to buy the necessary wood. It's a lot of work. In the past, I just winged it. I'd have a rough drawing on scrap paper and guess at the wood requirements, which which often meant follow-up trips to the store. Projects often had rework, redesign elements on the fly, and some issues that hopefully I could only see, hence the change to more exacting. I have a few questions. How exact are you with your designs? Is this the process you go through before purchasing wood? Is there another way to use any la- any apps like Board Feet Easy or Smart Cut 
Do you use any other woodworking apps? If so, which ones? Is 10% a good waste figure? Do you adjust the waste figure based on any criteria? And what are the criteria? Best regards, Joe. That's a lot of questions <laughs> about designing stuff. Um, I, you know, to be honest, I do it both ways. For stuff I build at home, I'll just start with a rough sketch. I want it to be kind of like this. And then I might apply the golden ratio as I'm building it. It's like, okay, so I've got this and I do this. I've, I've built tons of stuff on the fly. Um, one thing I know we built is I made a, a, a Sheraton writing desk yep. that we built. That actually was just totally built on the fly. And then I drew up some plans afterwards based on what I had built. And that's a good example of it. So I, but you can only really do that if you have a really good amount of wood in, in supply, because sure. there's inevitably going to be mistakes made and you put it together and you go, yeah, that doesn't look yeah. right. And then you have to remake it, which happens quite a bit. So I understand um, getting all the information up front first. So I'm going to equate this to something we do at work which everything has to be figured out ahead of time because we have to figure out all that stuff to figure out our costs because, you know, that, that, that determines our, our profit margin. Anyways, so we use SketchUp. I use SketchUp Pro for everything. And there is a um, calculator that, uh, that's an add-on that I use when I give stuff to the guys in the shop uh, I think it's like Woodcut Pro or something like that. What it does is it'll do, for plywood anyways, it'll give you parts lists and everything. It's very nice. I've used some other apps in the past, but they're they're way too optimized for them to be efficient is the problem. Mm. They'll give you a sheet of plywood, and you'll spend eight hours cutting these parts out of the plywood because they're all in different orient. It's just a pain in the ass. So yeah. don't bother with a lot of those. Uh, just cut your stuff up and, and go. But as far as figuring out how much material you need, you know, it's just you, you look at it and you say, well, the top has got to be this size. You know, if it's a if it's a table, say, you know, the top's got to be this size. The aprons are taking up this much wood. I got to make sure I have these certain size boards. Just figure it out. And 10% is usually the number I add to it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you, what do, you do, Hui? to figure out the how much wood to purchase. So I've done it three different ways. Uh, in in one instance, similar to what you were talking about with your Sheraton desk, uh, is when I've built uh, a project, let's say out of cherry, and I had a surplus of cherry, I didn't care, right? I just picked out the best boards and I went at it, right? And yeah, there's a little bit waste. Maybe it's a little bit more wasteful, but I didn't worry too much because I had an abundance of it. In another situation, when uh, when I'm doing a client project, I'm trying to get that margin as close as possible to try to minimize the amount of waste and also to minimize the cost for the client, in which case I've used SketchUp or uh, I've done it where uh, so so I've used the add on similar to what you have. But there's another way of doing it where you are taking a board and you draw out just a layout of like. I don't know, generically, maybe an eight inch wide by, you know, 10 foot long board. And I'm laying out the pieces like that. I lay them on top and I'll get a board book calculation from that way. Uh, And then finally, the other way I've done it 
is I've just estimated how, like, for instance, a, a chair leg, okay? I know a chair leg is going to require a board that is about six inches wide and so long. And so I, I'll say I need 10 of those 10 of those rear legs because I'm making five chairs and I'll multiply that out and then add 20% and say, okay, for the chair legs, it's going to require this for that part. It's going to require this. And then I, and then, you know, I'll give that to uh, not Frank Miller, but Erie and lumber out in Pennsylvania. And I say, I, you know, I need to make these parts. This is how many board feet I need. And he'll go out and pick out the material for me. And typically I'll say, I need, you know, add 20, 30% to that number. Um, and that's how I've gone about doing it as well. So there's the rough calculation of board footage. There's an exacting calculation of board footage using like SketchUp or some add-on app. And then there's the fly by the seat of your pants. I've got plenty of material and I'm going to pick out the best material that I have surplus of. Yeah. What about you, Brian? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really good question. I feel like we could have an entire podcast oh, yeah. addressing this one. <laughs> Um, so let's go, let's go sheet goods first. I, uh, no surprise to either of you guys, I use Microsoft Excel and I basically, <laughs> you know, I basically will, uh, I've got it configured for a little four by eight and in some cases eight by 16 grid with in each cell is either a six inch or 12 inch increment to represent that four by eight sheet. And I'll go ahead and, you know, before I start a project, I'll put my entire cut list together for that. And I will lay it out on there in a way that I know I can efficiently um, break that down into small enough pieces that I can bring to the table saw. And I'll just keep doing that until I've accounted for all of the uh, project parts. And depending on the size of the project, I may add um, an extra sheet on there just in case I do make a mistake. Now, when I'm using plywood mostly for, for the types of cabinetry projects that I'm doing, it's, it's going to end up getting painted the exterior of that. So the grain and all of that really isn't all that important. If you were buying plywood for, you know, like walnut or cherry or uh, quarter sawn white oak plywood uh, to use in a piece of furniture and the grain pattern on there mattered, you may want to, to, get a little bit more because you may find that you want to lay out your, your parts in such a way that you end up with quite a bit more waste on that, uh, sheet of plywood. So I think it depends a little bit on the, on the lumber. I do not use any calculators like that because when I buy lumber, I'm usually placing an order with a supplier and I'll, I'll explain to them what I'm trying to build just so and I'll give some preferences on sort of length and width um, of the species that I'm after. And I'm going to, I'm going to be pretty, pretty heavy on my scrap factor because I don't know what boards are going to come back insufficient for the type of use that I have. I mean, if I've got, if I've got some longer boards that need to go into the project and I don't have the luxury of being able to take a kind of wonky board and cut it up into small pieces and, you know, joint and plane that flat, then I'm definitely going to include a little bit more. And I also consider what species I'm buying. And if it's a species that I don't mind having extra on hand when the project is done, be another reason to be a little bit more 
yeah. um, aggressive with my scrap factor. But certainly by the time, I mean, if you if you need to if you need to yield a you know a three and a half inch wide, five foot long uh, piece, and you're getting six to eight foot lumber that you know is anywhere from four and a half to five five and a half inches wide. Odds are you're going to lose a good percentage of that board, way more than ten percent by the time you take that down to to the to the workable size. And maybe you can use, you know, the off cut. But again, you're that, at that point you're you're getting, you know, you may not be getting the grain that you're after. So ten percent seems really really low to me. Um, if you are, I know a lot of people will say, uh, or I've heard. A, Several people talk about when shopping for lumber for a project, they focus less on the, and if they're able to do it in person, they focus less on the board feet and more on the, that cut list that they're going to need. And they'll actually go. And as they're looking at boards and, and sort sorting through the stack, they're identifying the boards that are going to fulfill all of their cut list requirements and the board footage at that point just ends up what it is. Um, yeah. But you're able to then look at it and say, Hey, is this, is this grain pattern going to suffice for this leg or for this rail and style? Yeah. Um, so it, you know, depends on if you're placing an order online. Uh, if that's the case, go ahead and round up quite a bit on your scrap factor. If you're going to, if you're going to go in person and pick it out, you know, encourage the cut list approach and, and go and get as much lumber as you need in order to, to fulfill that and maybe throw an extra couple boards on there. Um, so it was a little long winded, but that those were my, my immediate thoughts. That's a great question though, Joe. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a really good question. And there's, there's a lot of different ways you can attack it. Um, but anyways, I hope that gives you some idea of, of, of how to do that. And uh, all right. So Brian, you've got the next question. All right. This question is, from Jason H. Um, I've got a buddy named Jason H. Jason says, I am building an outdoor bench using steel legs and what is currently a rough cedar top. I plan on sanding the cedar smooth and finishing it. What would be the best grit to sand to and what finish should I apply? It will get all day full sunlight. Okay. All right. So this this is an interesting one. And I actually am more curious. I, I picked this question guy and we, because I'm kind of curious on the answer. I don't know that I have a great answer for it, um, but I figured you guys would, and maybe I'll learn something along the way. I, he, it sounds like it's, it's rough cedar to, to start with. And given how soft it is, I'm guessing Jason, that you won't have too much trouble getting it sanded into a, a little bit smoother finish. The, I'm not, I'll leave the grit to, to these guys. I, I'm not sure there, but the finish, I, I would think, a, a would a spar urethane, would that work well? Is that going to hold up in that all, all day kind of full sunlight environment? Yeah, I, th- I think it would. Uh, there is a shelf life to that. In other words, like it's, it's going to last a certain period of time. And I think uh, ultimately you may have to refinish it. I think that might be the case for almost everything if it's going to be an outdoor piece that you will have to eventually refinish it. And even the most waterproof epoxy seal, I mean, 
you know, it's out in the sun and yeah. you're out in a lot of water. There's, there's, uh, as far as I know, there is no 100%, you know, completely foolproof, never have to refinish it again finish that I know of. Yeah. Every single finish that I've heard of has at some point needs to be scraped down, sanded down and refinished again. And it's just dependent on what the frequency in between is. Now, do I, I don't know what the frequency in between spar urethane is because I've not made something that has been outside exclusively, right? I've, I've made stuff that's been around water and spar urethane seems to work well with those things. Outdoor finish outdoors for goodness sake, right? Finish with spar urethane. So God, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? What would you, um, I, I have not built a lot a lot of outdoor furniture per se, but I've put a lot of stuff made of wood outdoors, if that makes sense. Um, And I have used, uh, I've used redwood before. I've never used cedar, but I imagine it's close to the same thing. It's a soft, um, it's a soft wood. Anyways, so sanding wise, I don't think it's, advantageous to go anything over 150 on it. I'd go 100, 120, 150 and be done with it. And I think you'll be fine. Uh, as far as finish goes, what we had mentioned before is absolutely true. It's going to be in direct sunlight. UV is going to break down just about any finish over time. So it depends on the look you're going for. Do you want the aged look or do you want to have it uh, look as good as the day you put it out there? You know, that's the question you have to ask yourself. And some of the finishes are designed outdoors to give that weathered gray look uh, over a a shortened period of time instead of trying to keep the wood one color or color fast for a longer period of time. And it's just going to depend on what you use. Um, Some of the stuff I've put outside before have been like, you know, planter boxes and things like that. A few, a few benches. Yes. Um, I'm trying to think of the name. I just, I'm having a senior moment. Um, Epiphanes? No, I've never used epithanes. This is something designed specifically for redwood in outdoor situations. It's like a stain with a UV inhibitor built into it. I can't remember the name of it. It's really stinky, nasty stuff. You can get it in the big box stores, but I just can't remember the name of it. Damn it. Anyways. So Waterlux? No, 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 no. This stuff is built is made for wood decks. Okay. That's what okay. I said. It's made for wood decks. Mm. They're made out of cedar or redwood, and it helps keep the color for a longer time and it, it doesn't break down in UV as quickly. I can't remember yeah. the name of it. It's it's about forty or fifty bucks a gallon. It's not cheap, but it works really well. Anyways. There are products like that out there designed for exactly what you're doing. Mm-hmm. The, the epiphanes I've never used, so I can't, I can't say anything to it. I have used spar urethane before, and that does very good with water. Um, I'm not quite sure how long it, it, it lasts against the, the, the UV. UV is, it's damaging. Brutal. It's a yeah. destroyer. It is. Yeah. It is. It is a destroyer, and it's it's really really damaging to finish. So uh, I don't think there's anything that's going to give that's going to be the magic bullet against that. But 
Yeah. Yeah. The only other marine type finish that I know of, and it's actually kind of funny because they became sort of an offshoot sort of epoxy company is by total boat. It's this water-based marine varnish. So if you're wanting to go the water-based route, maybe look into that. But again, I don't know enough about that and you can do an easy Google search for total boat water-based marine varnish. But in, in terms of marine varnishes, Epiphanes is the same thing. It's it's a finish that's designed for boats above the waterline, not below the waterline, but above the waterline. So, uh, would it happen to have? Would it happen to be called Olympic guy? Olympic no. deck stain? No. no, no. Anyway, uh, well, I think Olympic makes something similar to that. It's a stain with UV inhibitor type finish. So, yeah. All right. All right. Wait, you got the next one. All right. So this question is from Mike. Hello, all. How about another shop storage question? Because we've already had one. And why not another one? Uh, I've been primarily a power tool user for many years, but have started building a hand tool collection over the past two to three years. I'm finding the hybrid approach more approach more to my liking, and I feel it certainly improved the quality of my projects with the ability to fine-tune fit and finish. Now, being the proud owner of quality chisels, a few hand planes, scrapers, and so on, most of the tools are in a toolbox drawer. I want to get these commonly used items out of the drawer and in my reach, but I find myself starting to plan and build tool holders or storage solutions only to scrap it and move on to something, something else because I get lost in how simple or complex to make it. I need to just shut up and do it. Yeah, you need to just do it. Uh, I know this. In your opinions, when you need a storage solution, do you just make what's basic and functional and after some use or some time, fine tune or remake it when needed? Or do you spend the time laying everything out and aiming for a one and done type build? So me, my approach when I was building my hand tool cabinet, I built a relatively large hand tool cabinet with the intention of expanding. And at the time when I built my hand tool cabinet, I only had a handful of hand planes, like three or four, uh, and, a, and one set of chisels, right? I've since built that tool cabinet. And I now have a whole plane till full of hand planes and scrapers and about three different sets of chisels, um, two of which are bench chisels and then some other specialty chisels that are sets. So I guess for me, what I did was I built to future proof, right? So I built knowing that I would expand it. I have no intentions. I hope I have no intentions of buying any more hand tools because I feel like I have plenty. But the point is, is that I knew I was going to expand my hand tool cabinet. So I built one with the intention of that and knowing that I was going to fill that sucker up. Now, Guy, I know that when you made your, I guess, uh, tool cubby with all the cabinets uh did you kind of plan out what that was going to look like and what that was going to be did you have all the hand tools that you were going to need or did you do a more adaptive approach and say hey this is going to work for now and i'll expand it or change it later if i need to well i just i just dedicated space in my cabinets for hand tools and i built it out as i needed uh i, I think a good way um to handle this for him would be, uh, I do like the approach of building something simple and basic, sure. living with it, 
and then finding out what, what works and what doesn't work and then changing it to fit it, your needs a little bit better. Cause my needs aren't going to be the same as yours. Depends on how many tools you have, how often you use them, where they are in the shop. Cause it might be beneficial to have it in a tray. You can pick up and carry across the shop. Some people that doesn't mean anything to. So you have to look at all different things that mean something to you. Um, and I would start out with building it simple and then modifying it over time. And just to be honest with you, there are times when I don't have any projects to build and I'll spend, you know, a couple of weekends out of my shop, just changing things I've already done because I like to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I find, I find it fun. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I get it. What about you, Brian? Yeah. I'm similar to you guy. I like the build it, build it fairly basic and, live with it and figure out what you like or don't like about it and do, do more of the things you like and, and change the things that you don't. Um, one way you might be able to do that, Mike, is if you were to do a, a French cleat wall and put all of your tool holders on, um, if you make them, you know, small and individualized enough, and then you can move them around and figure out what locations you like and which ones don't work. Um, and then you also get the benefit of removability if if it needs to be mobile to like I mentioned take across the shop. For my shop, my my bench is in a spot and it's not moving from that spot. So I I took a piece of well, I mean it doesn't have casters or anything yeah. like that. It's not the only immobile uh, thing in in the shop. But I found uh, a half sheet of three quarter inch walnut plywood at one of our local lumber suppliers and it had quite a bit of figure uh, to the walnut. I was like, Oh, that's beautiful. I want to hang that on the wall. So I sort of framed it out, finished it, put it on the wall. And I just, I just drill all of my individual tool holders into it. And I've got a few holes now from where things used to be uh, and then decided to move them. But yeah, who cares though? Exactly. It doesn't bother me at all. And yeah, um, I found that certain things I, I like in certain spots and it's great because having that organization, Mike, is I think really, really important in the shop. I think it being organized, knowing where things go and being able to put them back and to standardize it that way um, creates a lot of clarity of mind that is needed, you know, when working in the shop and on, on a complex project, but have a little fun with it too. Um, you know, I said, build it basic, but at the same time, you're going to, you're going to be looking at it a lot. Whenever you're in the shop, you're going to see it. So I, I try to use really, really premium lumber on all of my tool holders because like I said, it's right in front of me and I'm looking at it. I might as well enjoy it and appreciate it while it's up there. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 I, I, that's one of the reasons in that little cubby of mine, I made all those little tiny drawers. There's yeah. 20 smaller drawers and they can actually fit quite a bit in there and uh, I've got everything from mechanics tools to, to hand tools in them, and I can yeah. move them around and I can, you know, take them with me and all kinds of fun, happy things. Right. Because they're, they're it's, pretty it's, much all about the same size, right? Guys? They're all exactly the same size. So yeah. So if, if there was something you were using more often, you could actually move it to the top drawer, right? Just yeah. That's how I say change the drawers. Yeah. Just nice. move them around. Yeah, so, I didn't think about that. Yeah, it's, 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 a nice, it's a nice way to go. 
right. I wish I had more drawers. Yeah, yeah. I love drawers. Drawers are important. I'm going to lose a couple drawers here pretty soon, three to be exact. I yeah, sold, I sold a, a bandsaw, and I, I, like an idiot, I made – it's a little 10-inch bandsaw that I really enjoy, but I need the floor space back. So mm-hmm. like an idiot, I took a picture of it and it had just a little bit of the base in it. And the guy says, oh, I'll take it, but I've got to have the base. That, that, that guy named Brian said, yeah, I'll take yeah. it as long as you include that base cabinet with it. Yeah, so nice. <laughs> did you buy it, Brian? Yeah, I bought it. song and dance. <laughs> Man, look at you swindling guy out of his story. I said, I'm not paying one penny more, though. I want to. (laughs) He said, Well, I'm taking the casters off it then. Yeah, the Roman casters are worth probably, I think those things are like almost $15 a piece now. They're so outrageously expensive. (laughs) So, anyway, okay. I think I've got the last question. That's right, right, guy. Yep. All right. Yep. This question comes from Phil Evans, and he says, Hi, thanks for all the great work on the podcast. Um, you guys are only a couple apps, taps away from my sausage fingers whenever I have a free moment and want to learn something. <laughs> anyway, he says, My question is about using a dryer plug for 220-volt machines. I'm planning a couple new tools for my basement shop, and whilst my first choice is to add a dedicated 220 line, I'd rather space things out financially if I can. One option seems potentially to use the dryer electrical socket until I have the cash flow to run dedicated electrics. I'm seeing mixed things in my research and wonder if you have any real world experience using dryer plugs for tools with an adapter extension, specifically if it's a hazard and the pros cons. In my case, the tools would be a Hammer A326 and a SawStop PCS3 horsepower. Thanks for any advice you can offer and keep up the great work. Phil, electricals. Wow, another thing we could spend days on. Um, When I got my first 220, or I should say 240-volt tool, um, I was like, how am I going to get this thing powered up? And believe it or not, I did have a spare dryer connection, and that's what I used. I mounted that on the wall right underneath my fuse box, and I actually put a, a 220, or I should say a, a, a 240-volt breaker in the box, ran it down to the dryer plug, and then I had a 10-gauge uh, piece of cord. Yeah. That was hooked up to the dryer cord. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. And it was, I think I had the thing you need to do is you need to look at the manual of the A326 and the the Sawstop three horsepower and any other tools you might be hooking up to that as an extension cord. And the manual will tell you what gauge wire you can run over what distance. Right. Um, right. Once you get that. Because I, I ran mine, I think I, I it's a it's a forty volt two twenty, and mm-hmm. I have ten gauge wire. But the 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 extension that I run to power up the tools had to be under I think it was like twenty five feet because of the draw. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's on a five horsepower Powermatic saw, and that was the thing that drew the most power. 
So I had to spec it for that. Just read the manual, find out what the specs dictate that the, 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 the plug, not necessarily the plug, but the thickness of the wire is the big thing. The plug is fine. Don't worry about the plug. What you really should be concerned about is the thickness of the wire and how far you're going to run it because mm-hmm. that's going to determine the if it's offering too much resistance, it's going to heat up and that's going to cause problems. So mm-hmm. any mm-hmm. advice you can give on that, Brian? Uh, I've, yeah, I've got nothing. Everything in my shop is 110. So yeah. So Are you uh, plan on doing any 220 in your shop, Brian? Not, not at this point in time. I mean, I'm I'm fully invested in my table saw and my dust collection. So depends on if and when I end up getting a bigger band saw. If I would buy one that would would require that, or or potentially a bigger jointer at some point would be the two tools I could think of that yeah. that may necessitate that. But do you? Is that is that saw stop? I know you have the one and three quarter horse, but that can be hooked up to two twenty, can it? Can it not? That's Maybe. a one, that's a one that's a convertible, you know. I Maybe. think. Yeah. A, a lot of the one and three horsepower saws can do that. Yeah. Even the contractor saws. Yeah, and there's, I, I, there, I'm, there, I'm almost positive there is an advantage to that. It pulls less amperage. Right. How would that affect? The, how would that affect the performance of the saw? Well, it's going to pull us amperage. Amperage. So let's say you're. Plus, it's going to be on a separate circuit from your lights. Let's say you've got some lights in the shop that are running, and your your TV or whatever. It's not a dedicated thing, and you start running your saw, and the saw gets put under pressure because you're you're running, let's say, an eight quarter piece of hard maple through it, and it's yep. going to start spinning harder it's got to ramp up the torque it's going to start using more amperage that right. line may run out of amperage and that's when right and you might when your break your blows. trip trip your breaker yeah, yeah. okay yeah. so yeah. with a with a 220 line it uses most of those breakers are are the same you know 20 amps but they're only drawing like 9 10 amps of power mm-hmm. yeah At, but yeah. their startup is more than that. But that, that's a whole other, a whole yeah. other uh, subject. But it, it, there is an advantage to it, even for you, Brian, with that saw you yeah. have. Okay. Most, uh, I was going to mention this, but most tools already have their uh, an onboard fuse or onboard over over amperage. Oh, I can't remember the term. Over- like a thermal overload? Yeah, some type of thermal overload or fuse or some type of internal breaker that that can be switched back on. Um, so so currently, I have a two forty volt line in my ceiling, and so very much it, it would be the same thing if it were a dryer plug, right? It's it's just two forty voltage, right? Um, at I, I think thirty amps or something is what I have because I'm not, I'm not running more than at the most I'm running two tools and each tool might r- draw like twelve amps under like full load right yeah um, so I actually have I did similar to what you did when you had your dryer plug is I created a I, I guess a drop or a whip it's that S O S J O O W type flexible line mm-hmm. and that's plugged up in the ceiling and then it comes down into a box that I created with four 240 volt 
15 amp uh, outlets in them. And I have my table saw, bandsaw, and planer in there. And I have a spare one just to have a spare one if for some reason I just need yeah. one, right? Uh, but again, all those tools are, are on there, but in no way am I ever, ever turning more than two of those tools on at a time. Yeah. So yeah. just... I've, I've, got, I've, I've got two lines for my shop. One's for the dust yeah. collector and one's mm-hmm. for the tools. Now okay, I, the dust collector is dedicated, right? Dust collector is dedicated. There's nothing else yeah. in that line because that draws a lot of amps. And, Same for me. And all my tools in my shop are hooked up all the time. All I have to do is flip the power on. Yeah. There are times when I will turn two tools on. Sure. But it's typically not. One of them is typically not the table saw because that draws yeah. way too much power in a five horsepower motor. But I may, right, I may right. you know, turn on the band saw and the, the drum sander. Oh, not the drum sander, but joiner. The, the joiner planer at the same time. And sure. same here. Other than that, you know, you're one guy in a shop is only going to run one tool. So you can get with, you can get away with multiple hookups and, uh, with just one line, as long yeah. as you're not overdoing it. I think the the short answer for Phil is that is not an uncommon thing to do. No, no, and the the, the dryer plug is absolutely uh, code. Yep. I think I don't know. I'm not an electrician, and I don't well, do well, it on TV. I, I, I want to say that some of these dryer plugs look the same as like a regular yeah. twist twist lock. They're pretty uh, four prong. They're pretty big and beasty. Yeah, but they're pretty generic. Yeah, because I've seen them on like generators have twist lock. Yeah, like some of these uh, big generators. I, are- I put mine on the wall because I actually had one from an old dryer installation, mm-hmm. and I needed to put something on the wall. And it's like, okay, I got this and the plug. I'm going to use it, and just that's what I had. That's all been replaced since then. I've got yeah. the regular little, you know, the 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 15 and 20 amp plugs that have the little ones vertical and ones horizontal. Yeah, uh, spade on it, and it goes in there. So, all right. So, oh, yeah, yeah. you were going to say something, Lee? No, I, I remember now because my outlet, my two forty volt outlet, is in the ceiling. Uh, it is actually a twist lock, four prong twist lock. It would be the equivalent of a dryer plug. Yeah. Some of these dryers are twist lock uh, dryer plugs. So, just keep that in mind. Yeah. Uh, it it seems to work fine. And I haven't had any problems. And I'm pretty sure it is to code. All right. But you got to check your local codes too. All right. So I think that's going to do for the questions. And let's talk about what's what we've got going on in our shop. So Brian, what do you got going on in your shop? I hear you're building an entryway table. Yeah, again, entryway table. I just <laughs> my dust separator. I have all kinds of different projects going right now. Yeah, dust so, separator, what'd you do? Um I was driving home from the neighborhood pool and somebody had a, I don't know if it's a 35, 40, 45 gallon trash can that they had sitting out on their curb and it said free. And I said, I'll take that. Threw it in the back of the van uh, and then cut, cut around, round plywood top for it, recessed the, the groove. um, Mm -hmm. And I had the, the hardware from Rockler. For oh, yeah. to create kind of the cyclone that so. works that works well the little elbow that goes in there and smith yep 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 and then i just used a, a bungee cord to to keep pressure down and put a little bit of a liner in that groove just to try to tighten that seal but 
Um, so mm. far, so good. Nice. Nice. What about you? Wait. Uh, me? Oh, me. Okay. Oh, yeah. Got it. yeah. So uh, I did. I added the shelves. So I made the shelves and I added it for the China cabinet I'm working on. And I added actually a front and back lip to sort of add some stiffness because the thickness of the shelves is only about like five eighths of an inch thick. So I, just to prevent some bowing with the uh, with the shelf pins on either side, uh, prevent that from bowing. I milled all the material for the entryway table. I've got the legs, aprons, and stretchers all milled out and ready to go for some uh, dominoes because, I mean, it's a modern piece. I just use Domino's. Um, and then I've got, I made a walnut plaque for one of my uh, support assistants at work who is retiring. And we made it, I made it in the shape of a keystone. She's a support assistant. So she's like yeah. the keystone that oh, holds us all together. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and then what else? Oh, and uh, I, I started the design for a new member wall placard for our church. So like new members or new people to the, you know, our community can go and reach and get some, you know, uh, material on this sort of wall placard that I'm designing. That's cool. Anyway, how about you guys? What do you got going on? In my shop, not a whole heck of a lot, uh, <laughs> as, as usual. I've been doing a lot of stuff at work. They, they brought me back out into the shop. We were getting kind of backed up and, uh. I've been out there for, I think, about three or four weeks for half a day. That ended today. Oh. I am no longer half days in the shop because we got all caught up. So um, I did manage to scavenge a bunch of really nice white oak plywood. Ooh. Um, and I've got that in my back of my truck right now. And I'm, I'm going to be building some cabinets for my wife eventually. Like for where and for what? For her office. She needs storage. Gotcha. And uh, so they're, just, they're pretty basic cabinets. I don't think it's going to nice. be anything fancy, but uh, we're, not, we're not very fancy people. So that's about <laughs> it. So... All right, and I think that's going to do it for the show. We'd like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes, and go ahead and do that if you're listening to this, and it really does help us in the search rankings. And, of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. So please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from you guys, the woodworking community. So if you have questions you want answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplife.com or DM us through Instagram at Woodshop Life. And I can be found on social media just about everywhere as Guy's Woodshop and you two at Guy's Shop. And where can you be found at, Hui? Uh, AlabamaWoodworker.com. All the links to my socials are there. And Brian? Not not any traditional social media for me, but you can find a few of my projects on SimpleCove.com at Brian Schmidt. All right. Very good. Nice. And uh, that'll, that'll do it. We'll talk to you guys in a couple of weeks, okay? All right. Have a good week. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.